Well, welcome to week two of our series in Jonah. We're going to be in chapter one, verses three through seven. And so I want to read it to you, and, and then we're going to unpack it together. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to chapter one of Jonah, and we'll start with verse three. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, you already know how the story ends. I read you the book last week. Um, Jonah's a prophet. He's called of God. He's a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, those ten northern tribes, under the reign of Jeroboam II. Now God calls him, and he sends him to a particular place, and that place is Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians are cruel, they're immoral, and he doesn't want to go. And we know that he's going to tell God no. He's going to basically run, as the story tells us right here. But we want to dig a little deeper to find out what's really going on, not only in Jonah's life, but in the bigger picture that we discussed last week. You see, there's so much more going on in this story than just Jonah and a great fish and his running from God. So let's dig into it. We, we know from last week that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We don't know how it came, but he was told by God to get up and go. And as a matter of fact, the word in the Hebrew is pretty particular because here it says arise, arise and go. But in Hebrew it's kum and it means to stand up, get up and do something. It's a command and God's expecting him to obey it. It basically means get up and go. Uh, excuse my French, but get off your butt and get going. And in every other case we see this command given to a prophet of God in the Old Testament, what happens next is they get up and they go. Wherever he tells them to go, whatever he tells them to do, they obey. But in this particular case, it doesn't happen that way. Jonah responds differently to God. So God says, arise and go, arise and go to Nineveh. But it says in verse 3 that instead Jonah rose and flee to Tarshish. Now that word rose is the same basic word. So rather than get up and go, he got up and went in the other direction. He left. It says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish is. Some believe it's on the southern coast of Spain, which would put it somewhere around 2,500 miles away. Uh, all we know is that it's west. He's headed in the opposite direction. Instead of going to Nineveh, he's headed west, and as far as he can get away from God's destination for him. So it says that he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And that phrase is going to be really important. He's trying to get away from God. 
And then it says he went down to Joppa. Now Joppa is just west of Jerusalem and it sits on the Mediterranean coast. And it's from there that he hopes to catch a ship to go to Tarshish. So he goes down to Joppa and then he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he pays the fare and then it says he went down into it. Now, one of the things you're going to find out, whoever the author of this book is, whether it's Jonah or someone else, he loves word plays and he uses words over and over again for emphasis. And this is a particular case in point. When he says that he went down, that, that phrase is going to be used over and over again, that he's moving away from God. He's moving down. He goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down into the ship. And then it says, why? Because he's headed to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So that's the second time that the author has told us that Jonah is trying to get away from God. Now think about that. He is a prophet, a prophet of Yahweh, but he wants nothing to do with Yahweh at this moment. He wants to get as far away from him as he possibly can. So he goes down. And it's almost this picture of a, of a spiral. He's spiraling down. He's moving away from. He's going from Jerusalem to Joppa and then hopefully to Tarshish because he wants to get away from God. And that word in Hebrew is yarad. And it means literally to go down, to descend. And, and it's painting a picture of really the spiritual nature of Jonah. He's on a downward spiral spiritually. This is not good. It's, it's not a pretty picture of this prophet of God. It's a disobedient prophet of God. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at a, a verse over in the book of Amos that describes the people of Israel as a witless dove. And that word dove in the Hebrew is Yonah. And it's the name of this prophet, Jonah, Y-O-N-A. And, and in a way, he's a witless dove. He, he's moving away from, trying to get away from God. He's flying. He's fleeing. And, and yet, it makes no sense. It, it, it's crazy for us to think about a prophet of God trying to get away from God, the omnipresent, all-powerful God. But that's exactly what Jonah's trying to do. And he's going in the opposite direction of what God called him to do. Rather than go to Nineveh, he's headed to Joppa. And in Joppa, he catches a ship hoping to go to Tarshish. Again, in the opposite direction. This tells you how much he despised the people of Nineveh and how much he was rejecting the call of God to go to Nineveh. He's literally trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. We've seen that two times in these verses. Now, again, we look at that and we think that's, that's ridiculous. Doesn't he know any better that you can't get away from God, that you can't run from God? But he's literally trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. And that, that word presence is important, again, in the Hebrew because it's the word panim, and it means from before the face of. He's, he's trying to get out of God's sight, so to speak. He's heard from God. Again, we don't know how he heard that message, whether through a vision, through a voice, but he's heard from God. Now he's trying to get away from God's face. He wants to remove himself from God's very presence. And what that reveals is that this prophet of God, even though he's a Hebrew called of God and, and commissioned by God, has a really flawed theology about his God. And one of the things I want you to wrestle with, as I've had to wrestle with in studying this passage, is that I too and you too can have a flawed theology of God, an incomplete theology of God. And when we do, it can be very dangerous. You see, 
Jonah viewed God as a regional deity. Now, this wasn't uncommon among people of that day and in that region of the world, whether they were pagans or whether they were followers of Yahweh. Most of these people believed that the gods occupied certain geographical regions. There's a story in the book of Kings that talks about a battle that takes place between the Israelites and another nation. And that other nation attacks them in the valley because God's the God of the mountains. See, they believed that God was relegated to a particular place. And so let's go fight in the valley because he's not the God of the valley. They had these limiting ideas about their gods. And it seems that Jonah shared the same idea, the same concept of Yahweh. See, he thinks that Yahweh only rules over and in Israel that he's not outside of Israel. So by moving away from Israel and moving to Joppa and then hopefully to get on a ship to go to Tarshish, as far as a, away as he can get, that he'll get away from God where God rules and God will have no control over him. So this all-powerful God in his mind does have limited reach. Otherwise, he wouldn't be going through the effort and paying the fare, however much it costs, to get away from Israel all the way to Tarshish. So he's got a flawed theology. He doesn't fully understand his God. Now, I believe he knew God intellectually. He knew certain things about God. Again, he was raised as a Hebrew. He, went, uh, he, he was taught the truths about Yahweh, but it was an intellectual concept of Yahweh. We know in chapter 4, he's going to make a statement about God in his anger at the repentance of the Ninevites, here's what he says to God. I knew you, Yahweh, were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. And he'll go on and say, that's the whole reason I ran to begin with, because I knew this to be true about you. So he did have a theology of God. He did have a concept of who God was, but it seems to be intellectual. He doesn't fully understand who he is. You see, it wasn't intimate. It didn't seem to be a very intimate relationship, a personal relationship with God. He was treating God as this deity who, yes, was powerful, but he was somewhat limited. Because what do we know? We know in the book of Jeremiah, this is what God says about the people. My people are foolish and do not know me, says the Lord. They're stupid children who have no understanding. See, this wasn't just a problem with Jonah. And, and Jonah represents the people of Israel. That's why he's called, they're called the witless dove. His name is dove. He represents them. He is a picture of the people of Israel. He lacks understanding. He's foolish. He's trying to run away from God. And he's not going to be successful as we know. So he lacks understanding. Here's, here's what I get out of this is that Jonah, the prophet of God, doesn't understand the ways of God. And you know what's true of you, because I know what's true of me, is that you too often struggle with the ways of God. You don't understand why He does what He does, when He does what He does. You don't like His timing. You don't like His ways. You would prefer Him to do things according to your plan, according to your timing, according to your will, and He doesn't. And that frustrates us. And, and so Jonah is frustrated. He couldn't see the bigger picture of God. Now, all last week in our lesson, we looked at the idea that the book of Jonah is just a piece of a greater puzzle. It's like a piece of glass in a, um, 
grand painting, a, a, a mosaic that makes up a bigger picture. And Jonah didn't get the bigger picture of God's redeeming plan for the world. He was blind to it. He, he couldn't see past his hatred for the Ninevites. And so what does he do? He tries to run. But I love this statement from Romans chapter 11, verse 33. This is Paul and he says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and ways. See, God is bigger than we can comprehend. And to a certain degree, our theology of God is always going to be somewhat flawed and limited because we are flawed and limited creatures. We're finite. We can't comprehend God. He's too great for us. And the same is true of Jonah, that he can't quite get his head around what God is trying to do. And because he doesn't like what God says he's going to do, he runs. He goes the opposite direction. But God tells us, my ways are beyond anything you could imagine. See, I can't comprehend what God's doing in the world today. I can read about it in the scriptures. I, I have a, a, a somewhat of an understanding what I think God's going to do, but sometimes He surprises me. Oftentimes He surprises me by His actions. And for Jonah, the idea that his God is merciful and compassionate and slow to anger, and yet he's trying to get away from him, those two things don't seem to make sense together. But again, he's got a limited understanding of his God and the ways of God. See, when you have bad theology, a bad understanding of God, it's going to result in poor praxology. That, that's basically behavior, how you do things. If you don't understand your God, you're going to do things that offend God, that go against God. That's why it's so important for us to have a good, strong theology, because what we believe about God will impact how we behave for God, the things we do for God. And see, we separate those two. We, we take theology and we make it an intellectual pursuit, but theology is meant to impact how we behave, the praxis of our life, the everyday practical nature of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis in every sphere of our lives. Our concept of God is going to ultimately, ultimately impact our conduct on behalf of God. So that's why we read a story in the middle of the Bible about a prophet of God who's running away from God because he doesn't fully understand his God. His concept is flawed. It's lacking in an understanding of the greatness and the goodness and the mercy and the love and that grand redemptive plan of God. I love this from A.W. Tozer. It's one of my favorite quotes of his. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the most portentous or important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Now, what he's telling you and I is that this idea of what we know about God, what we think about God, our concept of God is going to ultimately impact what we do. Everything about our lives our thought lives, our actions, all of our behavior will be impacted on our concept of God, our theology of God. And that's why we see this man of God, this prophet of God doing things that we look at and go, this is silly. This is ridiculous. You can't run from God. Everybody knows that. But see, Jonah wasn't quite sure of that. He was being driven by his inner motives. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I do not want to pronounce 
this message to the Ninevites in case they might repent. That's the last thing he wanted. So what does he do? He runs from God and he tries to get away from the presence of God. It says in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's trying to get away from the face of God. Now you may say, well, I've never done that. But I know you have, as have I. We, we don't open our Bibles. We decide, I'm not going to church this Sunday. I don't want to hear from God. And so in a way, we're distancing ourselves. We're removing ourselves from God. I don't want to go to Bible study. I don't want to get convicted. I don't want to hear the Word of God. And you're basically saying, God can't see you. God, God won't notice you. But like Jonah, you're going to find out there's nowhere you can run. There's nowhere you can get away from God. See, Jonah thought that if he could avoid God's will by running away, then everything would be okay. He really thought fleeing from God's presence would help him avoid the will of God. But you're not going to do it. You're never going to get away from God. You're never going to escape God's will for your life. And Jonah was going to find that out the hard way. That God had a plan for him. God had a plan for the Ninevites. God had a plan for the Israelites. And he was going to work that plan whether Jonah liked it, believed in it, or was prone to want to do it. Because God's will trumps our will every time. You're not going to get away from the presence of the Lord. And one of the things I think about is if Jonah was a good Jew, which I think he was, and if Jonah knew the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, like I think he probably did, because this, this book, if he wrote it, is full of references to Genesis, to Exodus, and to the Psalms. And one of the Psalms I know he would have known was written by King David. And it's Psalm 139. Listen to what King David says and think about what Jonah is trying to do. King David says, I can never escape from your spirit, speaking to God. I can never get away from your presence. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. Now, where is Jonah going? He's going into the Mediterranean, headed west in the ocean, trying to get away from God. And yet here's King David saying, you're not going to have any success at that. You can't get away from God. And then he goes on and says, I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. Now catch this. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. In just a few minutes from now, and we're going to deal with this next week, Jonah's going to end up in darkness. He's going to end up in the ocean, sinking down, and then he's going to be swallowed by a great fish, and he's going to be placed into perpetual darkness for three days and three nights. Everything David says here is going to happen to Jonah because you can't get away from God. And what we see God do is he inserts himself into Jonah's life in a major way. He's trying to flee from the face of God, but God's all over this situation. See, it says in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. God gets involved. That word hurled in the Hebrew is, is like hurling of a spear. He's actively involved in Jonah's life. Jonah's fleeing, he's running, and God is hurling a wind. He's going to deal with his rebellious prophet, and he's going to call him back. And then it says, there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. This storm is massive. This storm is dangerous. And the sailors on that ship have never seen anything like it. 
And it reminds me of Proverbs 19.21. You can make plans, and we all do, right? You can make plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Think about that. Here's another area where Jonah had a limited view of his God. What's his plan? My plan is to go to Joppa, buy a ticket on a ship, and get as far away from him as I possibly can, and never go to Nineveh. But see, God's plan is going to prevail. His purpose, His divine plan, His grand redemptive plan is going to prevail. Proverbs 69 says, A man's heart plans his course, but the Lord determines his step. See, I believe that God knew everything that was happening and He knew it well in advance. He wasn't surprised by Jonah's effort to get away. He wasn't surprised that Jonah went to Joppa, that Jonah bought a ticket, that Jonah got on a ship. As a matter of fact, I think God prepared the very ship that he was on and the crew that was on that ship. Everything in this story screams the sovereignty of God because God's in control. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. You can make your plans, but ultimately God's going to do what God's going to do. See, Jonah could run, but he's not going to hide. He could go down. He could go from Jerusalem down to Joppa. He could go from Joppa onto the ship and down into the, the belly of the ship, and he could go to sleep. He could, he could try to forget God, but God was not going to forget him because God knew his rebellious people. He knew his rebellious prophet. And here's what he said about the people of Israel in Amos chapter 9, verse 3. Remember, Amos is a contemporary of Jonah. He's a prophet. And he writes this, Even if they hide at the very top of Mount Carmel, a mountaintop, I will search them out and capture them. Even if they hide at the bottom of the ocean, I will send the sea serpent after them to bite them. I love this. Here's Amos, a contemporary of Jonah, who knows nothing about what's going to happen to Jonah, but he writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, even if they hide at the bottom of the ocean, I will send a sea serpent to, to bite them, to swallow them. What's about to happen to Jonah? He's going to be thrown overboard, and he's going to be swallowed by the great fish. Here's God through Amos prophesying, predicting exactly what's going to happen to Jonah. And Jonah is a representation of Israel. See, God is involved. God has inserted himself into this situation. He is the sovereign God of the universe and his will will be done. And we see it all throughout this story. It says in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind. He inserted himself. He took action steps. It says the Lord appointed a great fish. We'll see that next week. See, that fish didn't just happen by. That fish was created by God and it was created for this very purpose and for this very moment. It was at that place in the Mediterranean Sea just as they threw him overboard. He also spoke to the fish. That's a strange phrase, right, that God would speak to the fish. All it means is that God dictated the actions of that fish and he regurgitated the prophet three days and three nights later onto the, the shore. See, God's in full control. And it says later on that the Lord God appointed a plant and we'll deal with that in later weeks. And then God's going to appoint a worm. And every time you see that word that God appointed, that God appointed a fish, God appointed a plant, God appointed a worm. It's the idea of His sovereign work being done. He ordained is what that word really means in Hebrew. God ordained this, preordained this. 
Again, none of this is a knee-jerk reaction on God's part. He's not surprised by Jonah. This isn't plan B. He knew exactly what Jonah was going to do all along, and he has a plan in place, and he's inserted himself into it so that his will will be done. Well, the one thing we can't forget is that there's other people involved in Jonah's story. This isn't just Jonah and God. This is Jonah and these poor men on the ship, these mariners, these sailors. It says the mariners were afraid. These are probably well-seasoned sailors, but they've never seen a storm like this. Their ship is breaking apart from the severity of the storm. And it says that each cried out to his God. Now, this is really important for us to understand because remember, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And in Nineveh, they worship false gods. And he is appalled that God would ask him to go and potentially see these people repent, these idolatrous people. But we saw last week, here's the problem. Israel is just as idolatrous. Under Jeroboam II and every king that reigned before him, these kings had led the people into apostasy and idolatry over and over again. They worshiped all kinds of God. It began with King Solomon, who had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and he worshiped the false gods of these women. So, these men are crying out to their gods. Why? Because they're in trouble. And it seems to infer that this group is made up of a lot of different people from a lot of different countries who worship a lot of different gods. And each one is calling out to his particular God. Why? Because they need help. See, what I love about this story is he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but he ends on a ship full of pagans. He ends up on a ship surrounded by Gentiles who are idolatrous. He's the only Jew that we know of on the ship. He wants away from Nineveh, but he's now surrounded by more Gentiles. They're all over him. And they're all experiencing God's wrath, God's judgment. See, that judgment is aimed at one man, and that one man is Jonah, but these poor Gentiles are suffering because of his sin, because of his disobedience, and they're all in danger of dying because of the sins of one man. See, they didn't do anything to offend God other than the fact that they were pagans and worshiped false gods, but no one had ever told them about Yahweh. But here comes this prophet of God, and he gets on their ship. He's in rebellion against God, trying to run from the face of God. And as a result of that, God hurls a storm on the ship, and these men are suffering because of Jonah. And it reminds me that there's a lot of people on this planet who are suffering because of the sins of one man. It takes us all the way back to Adam. See, Adam was called of God, created by God, and he was given a mission by God. But he violated that mission. He and his wife sinned against God, disobeyed God. And we read in Romans 5, 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. So everyone sinned. See, these, these sailors, they don't know any better. They, they don't know about Yahweh. They haven't been taught the ways of God Almighty, and so they're worshiping their false gods, and they thought they were just going to get on a ship and do their normal thing and go on a uh, trip down to Tarshish, drop off their supplies and their goods, drop off this guy named Jonah, and go home. But no, now they're all about to die because of the sins of this one man. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, 
Now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Christ, the second Adam. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. See, these men, these, these sailors from these different countries who are worshiping their different gods are all under a curse. They're under the curse that came from Adam. And that curse is death. See, they're doomed, not just because their ship's about to break up, but even if their ship made it, even if they were able to save themselves, they're still going to die under a curse because of the sins of Adam. That's why this whole story is not about Jonah and a fish. And it's really not even just about the Ninevites. It's about the grand redemptive plan of God for all mankind. The Ninevites are somewhat stand-ins for the rest of the world, just as these sailors are. See, they need salvation. They're under God's wrath. And everyone on that ship, however many men there are, are all suffering God's wrath because of the sins of one man. And it doesn't matter with what ethnic group they're from, what language they speak. It doesn't matter what country they come from. They're all in the same boat. Excuse my pun. And they're all suffering. See, what do we know from Romans 3.23? For everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Everyone on this planet, man, woman, child, anyone who's ever lived, anyone who has ever going to live, they have all violated God's glorious standard of holiness. And so what's the verdict? Death. The wages of sin is death. And one of the things we lose when we read this story and we lift it out of its context and we turn it into a Sunday school fairy tale story it, is that these men really have no meaning. These, these men aren't real people, just like we treat Jonah as if he's not a real person. These men, whoever these sailors were, we don't know their names. We don't know where they came from. We know nothing about them. We do know this, though. They were all made in God's image, and they're all under God's wrath, and they have all sinned, and they're all under God's judgment. Yes, they're being judged because of the sins of Adam, but they're also being judged because of their own sins. And the wages of that sin is death. So what are they doing? Well, they're crying out. And, and one of the things that, that's important for us to understand, I told you that if you're going to read the book of Jonah, you've also got to read Hosea and you've got to read Amos. And over in the book of Amos, in the first two chapters, Amos describes the judgment of God against a group of nations that surround Israel. And, and he calls them out by name and he tells them what's going to happen. He uses the same pattern over and over again. He says, for three transgressions against Edom, let's say. And then for four, it's a way of saying, it's not just one, it's not just two, it's not just three, it's four. It's like, it's never ending. There's a lot of things you've done wrong. And because of that, I'll not revoke judgment. And he's going to begin with Damascus, which is Syria, the capital, Damascus of Syria. They were an enemy of Israel and they're to the north. And he, he begins with them. And then he's going to move to Gaza, which is Philistia, which is the land of the Philistines down in the west. And then he's going to move up to the north on the Mediterranean coast to the land of Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians. God's, it's like he's working his way around these nations that surround Israel and he's condemning them and he's bringing his judgment against them. He moves to Edom. He moves to Ammon. And then he moves, moves to Moab and he's getting closer and closer. And then he starts targeting Judah, the southern kingdom. Those two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And then he moves 
to the heart, to Israel. And he begins from chapter 2 all the way to the end of the book to condemn Israel for its sin. See, they're guilty. They, they've sinned against God. They're just as idolatrous as all those nations around them. They've adopted the gods of the Philistines, the gods of the Moabites, the Ammonites. They are just as idolatrous, just as sinful, just as immoral, and God is bringing judgment. And here's my guess. Many of the men on that boat who are sailors on that boat probably came from these countries. They were probably from Philistia. They were probably from Tyre and Sidon because they were known for their shipping and Lots of sailors would hire themselves out. They were probably Edomites and Ammonites that, that were on that ship. These nations that are under the judgment of God are on this boat next to the prophet of God. But he does nothing for them. What do these men do? Well, they call out to the God. They hurl the cargo that was in the ship, which, which was probably pretty pricey. They throw it overboard, trying to lighten the load, hoping to make it to shore. And they're desperately trying to reverse course and get back to Joppa or somewhere along the coastline. But what's Jonah doing? This blows me away. Jonah has gone down into the innermost part of the ship and he's fast asleep. Remember, it's that terminology of going down, spiraling down. He's moving further and further spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, physically, he thinks, away from God. And he's fast asleep. The storm is raging these, it has to be loud. There's got to be wind. There's got to be thunder and lightning and the, the waves crashing on the ship. And these men clamoring about and pulling all the goods out of the hold of that ship where this guy's fast asleep. And he's, the, the word fast asleep here, the idea is that he's almost comatose. He's almost in a drunken stupor. And maybe he is drunk. We don't know. But all we know is that he's fast asleep and the captain has to wake him up. He's doing nothing to help these men. He doesn't seem to care. So the captain of the ship finds him asleep and he confronts him and he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? What are you doing? Why are you sleeping while we're working? Get up and call on your God. We've called on our gods. Why aren't you doing your part? And this is really fascinating because here's the prophet of God, the, the one man who knows the one true God, and he's fast asleep and he has to be wake, woken up by this pagan captain and be confronted to call on Yahweh. And he says, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. See, he wants Jonah to take part in their rescue. Call on your God. And what's interesting here is what the author does. He gives us a glimpse of God but he does it in an interesting way. And God is all throughout the book of Jonah. And what he does is he, he uses three different names for God in the book. And the way he uses them is what's interesting. Anytime he's talking about Jonah, anytime he's talking about Israel, he uses one name. When he talks about Nineveh, he uses another name of God. When he talks about the sailors, he uses a different name of God. And so he's really portraying God from two different perspectives, the perspective of a Jew and the perspective of a Gentile. So here's what's going on. Those three different names are used throughout the book. The first one, the most important one is the Lord. And it's really the name Yahweh or Jehovah. It's, it's the proper name for God, the God of Israel. 
It's how they refer to their God. He's the self-existent one. He's the eternal one. He's the great God who created the universe. That's Yahweh. And they would write His name with four uh, consonants. Y-H-W-H. They would leave out the vowels. And they were afraid to say His name because it was holy. But they would spell it with these four letters whenever they wrote it. So anytime you see the word Lord in this passage or in this book, it's going to have all caps, L-O-R-D, and that's Yahweh. And so that's one way of referring to God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. See, he's mentioned 39 times in just 48 verses and 22 times he's referred to as Yahweh, the God of Israel. But he's also mentioned 13 times as Elohim. Elohim is a generic word for a generic God. It was used of all the gods. So when the God, the, the captain of the ship says, call out to your God, he uses this term Elohim. He's not talking about the God of Israel. He doesn't even know Jonah's a Jew. He's just saying, hey, call out to whatever God you worship. We've all called out to our Elohims. You call out to yours because we need salvation. It can mean divine ones, but it can also sometimes be used, as it is in this passage, about God Almighty. It's like the pagan name for God, Yahweh. So you've got these two different views of God throughout the book. That's why the captain says, Arise, call out to your God, your Elohim. Call out to whatever God you worship. But see, we know, as the Israelite readers who read this book or heard it read to them would know, it's, it's still God. It's still Yahweh. It's still the creator of the universe, the God of Israel. It's just two different names for God. But call out to your God. See, here's what's interesting. Here's these Gentiles who worship false gods, and they have no idea who Yahweh is. They're not using Jehovah. They may not even know the name of Jehovah. They're just saying, call out to your God. Call out to your Elohim. See, they're polytheists. They worship all kinds of gods. They may have had more than one God. And so to, th to them, they just assume Jonah has a God. They don't know where he's from. They're going, going to ask him in just a minute, but they don't know who he is. They don't know that he's a Jew. They don't even know what country he's from. All they know is, if you've got a God, call out to him. Why? Because they need help. So everybody's calling out to their personal God, and they want Jonah to do the same thing. Call on your God. Maybe just perhaps he might rescue us. See, they're, they're equal opportunity idolaters. They'll take help from any God. They don't care where he's from. They don't care whose God he is. Just somebody save us. That gives you an idea of how desperate they are. They've been praying and calling out and crying out and bailing water and throwing over things to lighten the load. They've been rowing. They've been trying to save themselves. But here's Jonah fast asleep. He doesn't seem to care. Now, maybe he's got a death wish, and we're going to find out later on that he actually does. He'd rather die than do what God's called him to do. But he's not calling out to his God. He does nothing for these people. And they say, call out to your God, the God. Maybe that God, maybe that Elohim might save us and keep us from perishing Maybe he might give us some thought. And I love the way the captain says that because in the Hebrew, it's the word ashath. And it means maybe he'll shine on us. Maybe he'll call us to mind. Maybe he'll look down on us and, and do something to help us. Show us pity. Show us mercy. They are desperate. 
And again, they'll take help from any God because they need salvation. And they long for some Elohim, some divine being, some greater being than themselves to step into this mess and help them. Shine on us. Shine your face on us. Show us some mercy. Show us some help. And it reminds me of Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This is what these men long for. They long for some Elohim, some God to step in and shine on them and to, to show them His mercy and bring them peace. They long for the storm to die down. They don't want to die. They want to be saved. And yet, Nothing's happening. The wind keeps blowing and the waves keep crashing on the ship. They're still scared. And it reminds me of this passage in Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Now listen to this. This is Paul writing centuries later. He says, as the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him, Jesus, will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, see it's all caps, Yahweh, Jehovah, will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But catch this, and think about Jonah, and think about that situation. But how can they call on Him to save them unless they believe in Him? How can they believe in Him if they've never heard about Him? How can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the Scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Man, what an indictment that is on Jonah. What a picture of what's going on on that ship in the middle of that storm as Jonah has to be woken up and told by a pagan captain to call on your God. See, Jonah should have had good news, but his silence condemns him. He says nothing. He does nothing. He utters no prayer on their behalf. He doesn't even pray in his own behalf because he would rather die than go do what God called him to do. He never mentions the name of his God. Never. Even when they ask Jonah, next week we'll see this, when they ask Jonah who he is, he says, I'm a prophet, but he never seems to want to tell them much about his God, the, prophet, the God for whom he is a prophet. See, he didn't want to be a light to the nations, as we saw last week. He doesn't want to shed light into this situation. He doesn't want to see these men saved. So here's, here's what happens. He does nothing, and these men are still desperate. So what do they do? It says they cast lots. Now, this was a common occurrence in those days. And they're trying to find out somebody's guilty, somebody's done something, and we got to find who it is because somebody has offended some God. And unless we appease that God, we're all going to die. They knew this was a spiritual issue. And somebody was guilty. And now they're casting lots to try to find out what it's like. They resorted to this kind of game of fate like rolling dice. Let's, let's see if we can figure out who this person is. And so they cast lots. I love this from gotquestions.org. The practice of casting lots is mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament, seven times in the New Testament. In spite of the many references to casting lots in the Old Testament, nothing is known about the actual lots themselves. In other words, we don't know exactly what they were or even how they function. 
They could have been sticks of various lengths, flat stones like coins, or some kind of dice. But their exact nature is unknown. The closest modern practice to casting lots is like flipping a coin. They're, they're basically just trying to figure out, maybe, maybe the gods will show us and we'll just cast lots, we'll cast dice, we'll flip a coin and see who's the guilty party. They're desperate. And this is from the Net Bible Study Notes. In the ancient Near East, casting lots was a custom used to try to receive a revelation from the gods about a particular situation. The Phoenician sailors here cried out to their gods and cast lots in the hope that one of their gods might reveal the identity of the person with whom he was angry. See, somebody's guilty, somebody sinned against some god, and maybe this will expose them. And yet they have no idea that behind all of this is Yahweh. See, here's what Proverbs 16.33 tells us. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So what's going on behind the scenes? God is orchestrating every single event. Even the fact that these pagans are going to cast lots, God's going to reveal exactly who it is. So they cast lots. And what does it say? And the lot fell on Jonah. Here's what's interesting. That word in the Hebrew means it was caused to fall. God caused it to fall. He did intervene. He was the Elohim, the God who intervened and exposed who it was. And this continues the downward spiral of Jonah. See, God shows that Jonah is the guilty party. And he uses the word evil, Ra, R-A. See, what Jonah was doing was evil. These men knew it, even though they didn't know who Jonah was. They didn't know who his God was. All they knew is somebody's done evil or this wouldn't be happening. And God exposes him. See, this man, rather than bringing good news, brought bad luck. He, he has brought down the wrath of God on these men who are innocent of anything other than that they were lost. See, Jonah should have been the bearer of, bad, of good news, but he brought cursing on those people. So here's your three questions to think about this week. And hopefully, as usual, you'll get together with somebody else and discuss them. And really think about these because I want you to make this passage personal. The first one, I want you to go back and read Jonah 4 verse 2. This is where he makes that statement about who he believes God to be. I know you're a, a, a God who's slow to anger. You're compassionate. You're loving. See, if he truly believed this, if he believed this about his God, why do you think he failed to tell the sailors about his God? If he knew that his God was merciful and kind, why didn't he tell them? Secondly, the sailors were religious men, but they were calling out to the wrong gods. People are doing the same thing today. What kind of gods are they looking to for salvation? And how can we help? See, here's reality. After this year that we've been through, people are looking for help and hope, but they're looking in all the wrong places. We know the answer. We have the good news. How can we help them? Finally, take some time to discuss Romans 10, verses 11 through 13. And I'm not even going to tell you what that is. You look it up and then just think about its impact on you. Are you going to be a messenger of good news or a bringer of bad luck? Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for these men. And I pray that as they think about this and uh, talk about it with others and talk about it in their small groups, that you would take them deeper into what you're trying to teach us through the life of Jonah and through this incredible book. 
Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You guys have a great week and I'll see you next week.